I bet half of our anxiety is just the energy of trying to remember which hat to put on in my relationships. And people end up becoming a less real version of themselves. Why can't we just be fully present to this process and not have to put anything on the side, not try to take away any of the personal parts of who we are? Greetings, I'm Leanne Mallory, and you're listening to Rise Leaders Radio, and I am still basking in the glow of this soulful conversation that I just had with today's guest, Jeff Shufflebein. Jeff goes deep today on what it means to live an undivided life. He's a rare leader that will use the term love when he refers to his feelings about colleagues and teammates. And you'll see why the company he co-founded, Five, has won multiple Best Places to Work awards, as well as five consecutive appearances on the Inc. 5000 Fastest Growing Companies in America. You'll also hear how a run-in with the law in college inspired him to launch a nationwide nonprofit that has likely saved hundreds of lives. For his work on this project, Jeff was awarded the National Daily Point of Light Award and the Texas Governor's Volunteer Service Award. As you'll hear, Jeff is a person who walks his talk. He exemplifies his faith in the very healthiest of ways and invests his time and his talents as a volunteer leader and a sought-after speaker on what workplace culture and living an undivided life. I am sure you will enjoy our conversation today. Thank you in advance for listening. All right. I want to start with an insight that I had about you. And I suspect this insight is very connected to this concept that you've created and live by called an undivided life, but I'm not sure. So I'm going to ask. For me, you embody the sense of freedom. So when I am with you, I don't feel angst. I don't feel stress. There's no drag with you. Even though you have a big job, you're an executive at a, at a fast-growing company, you're a father of five with another one on the way, you do massive amounts of volunteer leadership, and you're very involved with your faith, and yet you occur to me, you appear as someone who's very free. And I don't have a question. I just want you to respond to that. Well, my first response is, what a gift you've just given me. Not knowing that that was something that you were seeing or sensing, I feel like that the way that I'm living my life, which is more important than anything I could probably say on this podcast, is a reflection of how I feel and what I feel I'm called to uh, to bring to other people. And I mean, you're nailing it, right? This idea of an undivided life that I know will peel it back. As you know, this week is crazy for me. I've been speaking publicly for over 20 years. I've never had this many talks in a six-day period. This is talk number five out of seven to be able, and I know this is recorded, but I, you know, I'm going through this talk with you. I just got off of live radio, but what I've been telling people in all my talks is that when you have an undivided life or when you're, when you're striving to live an undivided life, it sounds countercultural because it is. It sounds like you're going to have to overcome a lot of 
your fundamental beliefs about your business or how you show up in the world or how you show up online or fill in the blank, like this pressure that you have. And so to think that you're actually going to do it or even give it a try, like live an undivided life and you know, some part of your life, I'm going to step out there a little bit is nerve wracking, right? It's, it's gut wrenching for people. And I use this visual all the time of somebody climbing a mountain and the background is missing. And then when I talk about the experiences I've had of living an undivided life, I let the background come into focus. And my point is, it's so freeing. So the, use the word freedom. It is so freeing when you can breathe easier. You can see more clearly. You understand maybe some big picture things now because you're not in your head. You're not worried about saying the next right best thing for a situation or on your social media post or making sure that you show up with this bifurcated approach to work and then there's life and then there's faith and you're bucketizing all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. It's exhausting. I bet half of our anxiety is just the energy of trying to remember which hat to put on in my relationship with Leanne. And is it different than my relationship you know, at home, do I have to talk differently? And people end up becoming a less real version of themselves. And they're not to blame. They're just, just doing what the world told us to do in business school and by our mentors and showing up to make sure they fit the bill and they can climb the corporate ladder. And I think it's such a shame. This is so much of our energy. Why can't we just be fully present to this process and not have to put anything on the side, not try to take away any of the personal parts of who we are. And so I always do this. I, I like going to like these false narratives that I think are in the way. If you'll, if you'll indulge me, I'd love to yeah, share. I, some I was actually going to ask you what divides us. If the goal is an undivided life, mm-hmm. how do we get divided and what are some of the examples? And maybe that's what you're about to go into. Sure. The one that I think is probably the most commonly beginning to be commonly accepted is that business is not just business. You know, that Business is about shareholder wealth and we've got to cut people and invest here and get this shareholder return. Those should be outcomes. Shareholder returns should be an outcome of a really good company. But I think that that kind of 50-year-old mindset that we have causes people to think that business can't be personal, that you're supposed to check your personality at the door. I've been told, don't be friends with your employees because then what happens when you have to have a tough conversation? or you have to terminate somebody. Mm. And it turns out, I think if you're a really great friend, you can do those things. You can do them in love, in justice. You can do them giving that person momentum and respect and dignity because people are going to lose jobs for one reason or another. Why not show up for that person and make it personal in that every business is a people business? So I, I don't buy into this business is business. I think there has to be that higher purpose to why your body exists, why your business exists, why you make money. Um, If I can keep rambling off some of these false narratives for you. I also think this whole idea that work, you know, you exist just to make money is so weird because work really is this place of human formation. If, If you step back and you care about human beings, which all of us do when we stop pretending, work builds people, it forms people. Having problems at work, Rising through challenges as a team or accomplishing something that you learned or overcame or even falling flat on your face, that's all steps that you have to take to human flourishing. And maybe not everybody's as excited as I am about human flourishing, but if you get down to the core of people, not many of the people in the world actually want somebody else to fail or to 
to lose. They've just been taught that in order for me to be good at my business, I win, you lose, I'm great, you're not. And that's, it's not true. And you take it further, you know my background, check your faith at the door. Make sure that nobody knows your faith. Well, if my faith, I'm a very strong Catholic follower of Jesus Christ. If my faith informs every single part of my priorities and what motivates me, then if I check my faith at the door, isn't that a lack of integrity in the situation? Uh, And and also you're checking your humanity. So now you're peeling back. You're being told, don't care about your employees. Don't um, be personal with them. Don't show yourself. And then also check your faith. Then I wonder what you wind up with. You just like ahead, you know, you just have a, you just show up as a brain. And there was a statistic. I don't know if it's still true. So uh, some of the physicians that are out there or cardiologists may know this, but there was, there was a statistic at one time that the most common time for a heart attack was nine o'clock Monday morning when people were leaving their hearts in the parking lots. No. And so there's a cost, not just to our our own dignity and the dignity that we show others and our own integrity, but there's a cost to our health when we pull all of these parts of ourselves back and then try to show up as this one-dimensional brain. Homogenous business person. Insert homogenous <laughs> business person that has no no diversity to offer if we have to fit in to every business construct. So I brought up faith. Faith is scary for people because they don't want big fights at their organization and they don't want politics at their organization. But that goes back to intentions. If you show up because your faith is what informs you or fill in the blank, some fundamental belief of of how you were raised or where you were raised, it turns out when you really believe something, the people around you can connect with the fact that you care. Not that they want to connect with the exact same thing that you believe, But somebody may have other strong beliefs or some really neat part of their background that if you're willing to share and be open, most people are really receptive and they want to share with you what drives them, where where their persona came from between nurture and nature. And so it could be on opposite sides of religious beliefs. It could be somebody who's non-religious and has a view of the energy in the universe. Mm -hmm. And you can end up having a really, really cool conversation, which by the way, if you're going to be a good Christian, that's evangelization. It's accompanying people on a walk and just being present to them. Let God take control of what happens next. That's not, it's not my place, but right. I'm supposed to show up for it. Yeah. So this idea of uh, showing up uh, with integrity and as an, an integrated or an integral person is another way. It sounds like of wow. thinking about this undivided life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another thing that I'm reminded of, Jeff, is... I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Bob Keegan, but he's written books. You know, he's he's a great developmental psychologist and a Harvard. He's a retired Harvard professor now, but he has a book. I think it's an Everyone Culture. Oh, yeah. Yeah, have you? I have it sitting on the bookshelf around here. I was trying to remember where I knew that name. Haven't read it yet, but I do know the book. Yes. Yeah. Right in the very first chapter, he and his co-author Lisa Leahy talk about this dynamic where most people at work have a second job, and it's managing their reputation or managing their image. And as you were saying, just the energy that we spend managing all these different parts of ourselves, deciding what we want to let show, what we want to hide. Are we showing up in the right way? Are we going to get a lot of likes? Are we going to get a lot of whatever that is, that we spend a lot of energy on things that um, are actually 
keep people from knowing us as who we are. Mm-hmm. Just, and that energy is hidden. Like you don't realize you're doing it. So yeah. it's really hard to combat it. And that's why I try to convince people, like, just take a leap, find one place to join me in what I'm trying to describe here. And, you know, it could be this big, bold concept. Actually, everything I'm about to say is bold of undivided life. It could be that you bring love into your personal work relationships, this idea that love is infinite. And you know, my priorities, I love you, but not the way I love my kids and I love my wife more than I, and differently than I love my kids. And I love my relationship with God differently than my relationship with my wife. So I have my priorities. It doesn't change the fact that I have love. Mm-hmm. And so that's really scary for people to get into this. Like, oh, did you just, you just told Leanne Mallory, you love her on a podcast? <laughs> Absolutely. And I can tell you what I love about you. And that's a really neat place to be. But as you kind of step into these bold moments of living, I think the way that we're actually designed to show up. The freedom comes, and you know what comes after the freedom? Mentorship, accountability, cool opportunities that you could have never predicted in your life. And it's because people feel like they know you. They might start to connect to you because you're speaking and living a message that they have kind of buried in their heart, and you're reminding them of who they were when they were younger and believed in these things that you could have in their life, and they want it. It's same reason why when people are nagging or complaining about a spouse or kids and they find out that I have five children (laughs) and they say, oh, you must be so glad to be out at a work dinner or on a business trip. And I let them know that by no uncertain terms, no part of me wants to be away from my kids. I'm fine to be on this trip, but I'm not trying to escape my kids. I love them dearly. They're a blessing. Almost everybody turns and like, yeah, I feel the exact same way. I just, Mm -hmm. I say that other stuff because that's what you say. Yeah. You just- The narrative. Yeah. And it's contrived by- something else, some power that told us to act a certain way. And every time I fall victim to that, and I do, right? I cared about what people liked on Facebook before and finally got off of social media last summer, other than LinkedIn, which I don't know how to not be on LinkedIn in in the world. But when I go through that though, every time I unleash more of it, or I get more honest with myself, it's not just results that follow and there's plenty of great results. It's like a, it's a feeling of joy even in hardship, or it's a feeling of peace, even when, trust me, my world is chaotic. There's nothing peaceful on paper about the day that I lead when I wake up at 4.15 every day and get rocking, but I love it. Yeah. And I feel blessed by it. And it's the one that you chose. That's right. And it's okay that somebody else doesn't want five kids. I'm okay with that too. (laughs) Yeah. I I wanted to uh, not be outnumbered. So we had two. Yeah. (laughs) And And I bet those two kept you plenty busy. And they did. They did. Um, One of the things that I recognize or that I come across a lot in my coaching is this desire that people have to be authentic. Mm -hmm. I think it's the same thing that you're talking about living an undivided life and it's scary for people because people have, they've had experiences in their life that are real experiences that have um, caused them to be, to show up in certain ways that are acceptable to everyone. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, because it can be scary to think about living an undivided life, being completely authentic, how you advise people to go about doing that? Is there a step one? Are there, you know, five keys to living an undivided life, uh, aka, you know, by Jeff Shufflebein? Where do you- Wouldn't that be nice if there was five? I could could just have everything be fives. (laughs) Well, some some odd number, three, five, seven, something like that. That way it flows well online. Uh, (laughs) 
first, I want to make a comment because I think people will hear this that have had wounds or have situations that have real medical needs. Mm-hmm. There is an absolute need for professional help to get through some of whatever may be caused people to live an inauthentic life. And I have no judgment in that whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, that's for professionals. I think that there's a lot of us too that are just in this murky middle of there's not some medical or psychological thing we have to overcome. It's it's psychological, but it's really just that the universe has put us in this place and, and we're afraid of it. The first thing I'd say is just like culture building, I don't think you can skip a step. I mean, if you're kind of on the second rung of the five rung ladder, you can't jump to number four, all of a sudden be authentic in everything you do. Um, I don't think that's sustainable. I actually think it's inauthentic to jump that far. Um, I would say that working in small concentric circles, and I just mean take whoever's the closest to you, whether that's emotional or physical in a work group, I might not be able to change my entire operations team that I'm a part of, but maybe I can get into two relationships in that group that start to allow me to open up more. I'm willing to be vulnerable I feel like this person is somebody that if I trust them and they hurt me, that I know it's not going to be ill-intended. So I'm just looking for these little gateways or kind of Mm -hmm. testing these boundaries so that as I become a little bit more bold with those two or three relationships, I'm giving people this opportunity to hurt me, but it's not that I'm doing it on the front page of my Facebook profile or in front of the whole company or in my, my social circle that I run with that I feel like I'm kind of faking it in, you know, start in those small tranches so that you feel like you have a safety net. And then it's communication, right? Are you being open and honest? Do you know how to start to use the language that asks people to meet you there? And I look at the relationship I have even with my wife, you know, in our first part of our marriage, we had to learn how can I change this table setting for certain conversations? So if we said, hey, I want to share with you something, but I feel vulnerable in sharing this, that was such a trigger for the other person to say, okay, change your mindset, make sure that you're here right now and you're not doing the dishes or thinking about work because this is a moment that's really important. We do that at work. Hey, when you get a few minutes, man, I would love to get some coaching from you and maybe share some feedback about something I experienced. If I say coaching, feedback, yeah. you know, now all of a sudden, you know, okay, don't look at the next email if it's a bad time, let me know when we can sit down together. So you start to develop this trust and relationship. It turns out we should just trust people. People are going to hurt us. They're in the minority. And if you can keep kind of building out now that your your circle gets bigger and bigger, the ripples get further and further apart. Mm -hmm. Now, all of a sudden, you're taking this pocket of people that you have a trusting and loving relationship with, and you're connecting them. You're becoming the triadic center that brings people together because we're kind of all equally yoked. We all really do want something special, you know, even if our big giant company or whatever organization has cultures within it that are toxic. Let's just make the part that's right around us a place we like to come to. And that I think begets confidence and it it begets this sense of this is possible. And you're learning the tools as you go. There's certain language that hurts relationships. There's certain language that builds it up. And now make it part of your studies, study how to be a better, more present person. You know, one of my favorite things, Leanne, is to tell people, and this is not contrived. I've just received so much great feedback. I tell people that I appreciate them. I appreciate you so much. And I appreciate the way you show up and I appreciate your effort. And I don't try to appreciate your outcome. Your outcome is just a detail of the narrative. You either did or didn't achieve the outcome you wanted. Just like raising my kids. My daughter had the top grades in her class in first grade. 
my wife and I never told her, actually. We said, we can tell by your grades that you put in your best effort. We're so proud of you for showing up with your best at school. And we didn't just do that because we were trying to protect her. I don't need any of my other kids sitting around saying, hmm, am I being compared against this kid that got the top grade that year? That's not what it was about. That's just a result. Yeah. I want to go back to and comment on this topic that you're talking about. I would say like start close in with the things that you can do. One of the questions that I continually get when I'm talking about culture or working with the group, how do I get leadership to do X, to impact the culture? And what I appreciate about what you just said is that we are in total control of our inner circle Mm -hmm. and how we show up for ourselves and with other people and that we can continue to expand that circle. And it really, I don't want to say it doesn't matter what the rest of the culture is doing because it does. Sure. And we're in control of our immediate surroundings, how we respond and how we show up for other people. So I'm really appreciating that that's your starting point. It's I have a gr- that start close in. You're, you're triggering something for me. I have a great story that um, I started working for a big energy company in 04 called First Choice Power. In 05, I hired my first employee and it was somebody I had known for a while. And we worked on a small team. Well, we were having so much success working with indirect sales that that group started to grow. And we were hypersensitive to who we added because we felt like we could read all of each other's emails and text messages and represent each other because it was about a team serving all of the energy brokers. And it was a team-based approach. What was so fascinating is next thing you know, there's maybe five or six of us in this group. And we're so close that we start doing offsites. We're reading good to great together, one chapter at a time, and coming up with our version of that vernacular in our lives. We're watching TED speakers and having conversations about it. We're going and doing a service project so we can have this shared experience. And the group had tremendous success. We were winning on the scoreboard and people could see that ups or downs, good or bad years, they wanted to have what we had at work. We had camaraderie and joy and fortitude and a grit. And so then as that group continued to grow, I'd say, hey, at the sales meeting, now we're going to read Delivering Happiness, the Zappos story. And the operations team would have two or three people like, hey, can we join the book club? And then the marketing team And now the Monday morning sales call that's supposed to be salespeople has every department, not everybody, but somebody from every department. And they get to hear everything about sales. They get to contribute about the parts that they know about the business that we don't, all because they wanted to be there for this culture building moment of a shared experience going through this book together. And that was a game changer. And I won't say this happened to everybody, but I bet we were in the 85% range. Remember, this is an old utility turned into a retail electric company. So think about those mindsets. And I would say 85% of the people there were bought in that our culture was about helping people, that it was team-based, and that there was more to it than just showing up and getting a paycheck. So they said, I get to go to work instead of I have to go to work. That happened over about a five-year period. So it was not overnight and there wasn't a magic moment, but let's take a good to great. It was the flywheel of working in the area you can control and then being the magnet And by the way, the magnet attracts, the magnet also repels. There's people who couldn't stand what we were doing Uh and that's okay. No judgment to them, but it just was the wrong side of the magnet and that's fine. So 
Well, and what I'm hearing too, because you had all departments across the organization represented in your sales meetings now, that then you have an undivided company. That's right. You know, well you well have, done. Uh, there's a horizontal nature of those relationships that cross the boundaries and that's priceless. What I, you know, I do a good bit of group coaching inside organizations. And when we put those groups together, we put them together cross-functionally mm-hmm. so that people get more exposure to folks, you know, across the aisle. And so people become more human. They're more willing to make requests. They're more willing to to register a complaint, like an oh. honorable complaint that said, this isn't working, let's work on it. But the relationships really are primary, I think. In tough times, we, we would take yeah. salespeople, one of them sitting across from me right now, we would take salespeople in tough times and have them go work in areas that we lost somebody. So we had a salesperson go work in contract operations that was also called COPS. It's literally the police force that stops sales is the way that, that everybody acted about it. And this gentleman, when he was there, helped the sales team to see how poorly they communicated with the contracts team, helped the contract team to stop telling stories about what the sales team was trying to get away with. And next thing you know, we said you were never allowed to use the word COPS again because it had a negative connotation within that context and that they were contract operations and that the human beings on both sides came together and we started having lunches together. So again, it's breaking down whatever wall you want. And that one was kind of forced on us by nature, by the fact that we didn't have the the money to go replace somebody. But it's a place of breakthrough and people actually meet face-to-face and get to know each other. Yeah, yeah. So I want to really get all of the juice out of this idea of an undivided life. And so what else... Uh, I have several questions for you. Some of them are about Undivided Life. Some of them are about your early entrepreneurism just runs through your blood. And so I have some some questions that I want to ask you about that too, but I don't want to leave this topic of Undivided Life. So you've talked about being present, showing up as integrated with your faith, your family, all of those, all of those types of things. And in work, this idea of concentric circles and, you know, like just starting small, building those relationships close by. Is there something else, Jeff, that you want to make sure and yeah. make sure that we all hear before we, I change the direction of our conversation? Sure. And I think you're really good at this, by the way. If you are ever in a position where you get to play the coaching role, doesn't mean you have to be the leader or the boss. Coaching can happen up, down, lateral within an organization. I think cultures of coaching are very, very important. And when people want to figure out how to coach, the ticket is to start coaching. Now there's certifications and all great stuff, but I'm just saying we have a culture of coaching. And for me, where I have seen breakthrough, and I mean breakthrough that ends up on the scoreboard, right? It's earnings, it's sales, it's it's reduced costs, is actually a result of caring more about the person than I care about their business acumen or the KPIs or anything else related to their performance. And it turns out that in coaching, I let people know that their formation is critical to me. I cared greatly about it. That one of my ultimate goals and signs of whether or not we're succeeding is, does your family consider you to be fulfilled and thriving because of this job? And that could be your kids, your parents, your spouse, your friends, whoever is family and and your loved ones. Do they see in you a better person because you are part of an organization that is giving you meaningful work 
with people you enjoy and challenging you and holding you to account in a dignified way. And I think that that is a place where human beings, where I'm fulfilling what I'm called to do for people, which is focus on the person and let those results be those results. And yes, I'm hyper-focused on metrics because you want to know what's happening with your business, but you don't run the business by metrics. You run it by getting highly engaged, fully formed adults, loving, trusting, and empowering them and getting out of their way so that they're going to do whatever they do. And sometimes it's going to blow you away because it's different than what you expected and the results are better than you know you would have gotten. And sometimes it's going to be just the opposite. But either way, that person is better off. So therefore, I think the whole health of that person becomes an input to the company's long-term health and success. I also don't ever want in, in an undivided life to make people believe that that means you're always working or you're always X. Mm-hmm. That's not true. I think because it's an undivided life, your priorities still have to line up. And again, for me, my wife before my kids, before all else and God's above my wife. Well, if I'm living that, And I like to work in the evenings. I shouldn't be sending emails at 8.30 at night to my team because then if one of them replies, then the other team members got to prove that they're working. So they're on their phone. For me, maybe I do like to work on Saturday mornings. I don't need people proving to me that at the soccer field, they're also checking their email. So an undivided life also respects the fact that we weren't made to be 24-7 working machines or 24-7 available. There's a, a dignity and a respect that, that person, if, if I recognize the personal side of who they are, I also respect their personal time. But knowing them personally, go back to this, like coaching the person, not the results. I can tell when somebody's having a tough time and maybe they're having trouble vocalizing it, or you can sense that something's off. And so maybe you help to modify a little bit of the workload. You can find out from somebody things that they might not be willing to share, but they need to be addressed. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I hear stories in all sorts of companies where people might have a really incredible vacation policy, but they're afraid to take time off when they have a miscarriage because miscarriages are so taboo about how do you go through that grieving? And I know I just took a total left turn on you, but if you really know and love your people, now you can love them through trauma and insist on the right amount of time, a minimum amount of time for grieving in something that might also otherwise go unsaid because there's shame or they never let anybody know that they were in that state of life. And so making it personal makes it matter. And that is just work. That's not good. Yeah. I can imagine people listening to may, uh, having an exhale right now that you're not saying that we need to be undivided life does not mean that we're always on and that no. we're always available because that's not sustainable. Um, I can also imagine that there are people listening that hear you talking about love and relationships as primary, not the metrics. The metrics are important, but that's not what we're driven by. And that's how a lot of people know how to work. The the humanity, the relationships are messy. We are messy. I remember hearing a consultant say, we are wet, messy human beings. We have snot, we have slobber, we have all of these, and our emotions are wet and messy. And those are hard to deal with. Metrics and operations, that doesn't cause us to get out of our comfort zone. We can talk about that. 
So I can imagine that, you know, there are people out there listening that are thinking, oh my gosh, you know, there's a gauntlet being thrown down here and I don't know if if I'm going to pick it up. Sure. For me, I think about our goal in this company, like we want to help people, ultimately changing the way our industry is run and the way that people come to expect energy information. But to do that, we really actually want to change the way businesses operate and interact with people. So now my objective is so bold. It's about changing the way business is done and inserting personal relationship into business. Now to get there, right, to have that kind of an impact, you probably should be a high performance culture with growth and high expectations where people are fulfilled by the challenge that they receive, Mm -hmm. by the times they overcome that challenge, by the times they learn from not overcoming that challenge. It's not ping pong tables and beer cakes. It's the joy in the culture comes from sprinting along next to people that have the same ultimate vision of where we're going, but they might take a different path and they don't have to look to their right or left to wonder if their teammate's going to be there for them. We're just sprinting. Mm -hmm. And it feels good to achieve. It feels good to win. And I think it's important to say, obviously, you are in charge of culture, chief culture officer, and in charge of sales and other things. Is that true at, at five? I just want to point out, you've got a big job, and you're yes. talking about all of these love and relationships, and you're very successful, and you have a successful company. You're a co-founder of Five, Energy by Five, and it's a very successful organization. So there's not a false choice there either about That's right. being human or being successful. When I love helping people to feel that thrill of winning together as a team, I'm a team sport person. I think there's something um, so special about the team becomes its kind of own body, right? You have all these individuals who are contributing on this team, not a team full of individuals. I hope that makes sense. The team uh-huh. becomes something. And so we are very successful. You and I joked one time that I answer all my own emails and I answer pretty quickly. <laughs> right. But think about what I'm talking about here too. If, if the way that I love and coach and empower people is such that they know I trust them, they don't even have to like kind of second guess, do I trust them? I trust them to the point where if they mess up, I'll step right alongside them and take the blame. I just trust them. That they're able to do what I said before, sprint, make decisions, seek wise counsel. If they're entering into a really tough conversation, come beforehand and role play and work through how are they going to approach this? What are they thinking about? But when it comes to the actual doing, the executing of of who we are as an organization and and really across all the organizations that I'm a part of, I'm not doing as much much as people might think. This culture thing is is as much just a beacon on the wall so that people know that culture is paramount here. We're willing to have one of our C-level executives with a culture title as it is the fact that you know, my role in a, in a very flat organization is to be a team member on the sales team. I architect the marketing side. I'm a team member on the recruiting side. I'm a team member on the strategy side. And there are key people in each of these roles. But at the end of the day, it's a team that figures out how to be smarter and better than any individual. If it was relying on just my ability or just, you know, one of my employees' abilities, we would have never had the success we've had. It's not multiplicative. Yeah. So I want to talk about the organization, the nonprofit that you founded when you were in college. Right. And there are two stories that that I most remember that you told about this. One is this idea when I asked you, I said, You're you're answering all of your own emails. You seem very available. I'm kind of surprised that I didn't have to coordinate things through someone else. And you 
you shared what you just shared with me then about the trust in the people that you work with, but also how you came about that. That's right. How you landed in the hospital uh, because early right. in your as you, as a twenty year old, you weren't doing that. You were trying right. to do everything. But before we get to that story, how you even formed this nonprofit yeah. is really important because you had an incident in college that I know many people who have had similar incidents live the rest of their life with a sort of shame and they don't, maybe they don't ever get over what happened. My story is that you turned that incident into something positive. So, so that I can quit referring to the incident. The incident. What, just, what did what he do? Just, <laughs> yeah. What did this guy do? Yeah. Uh, can you just say what he happened, met. how you responded to it and what you learned? I went to Texas A&M University. I was the fourth kid in my family there. My parents never had a break. We all overlapped, okay? (laughs) It's important because I started school kind of the hero with more college credits, and I quickly sank to the bottom of my parents' list because when I was starting my sophomore year, I actually got arrested for driving while intoxicated, and I was guilty of the crime. I was grateful in the moment that as I was being arrested, it wasn't because of a car accident. Nobody was hurt, but it also wasn't the first time that I was guilty of the crime. And so even in a state of inebriation, I was grateful to be going into this moment because it was almost like the death of one chapter mm. and one, let's call it like an invincible punkhood, you know, like good kid making a bad mistake. And it was the beginning of the next. Well, so I go to jail, come out. When I tell my parents um, extreme disappointment, I let them know the state had already taken my license away. I ended up losing my license for 14 months. And I pled guilty the first time I could get into a court for two reasons. One, I was guilty. No need to play games with lawyers or try to outmaneuver the court system. I know friends who had incidents when they were in college and they still blame the police officer because that's what their legal team came up with. You're drunk driving. Just, <laughs> yeah. you did it. Yeah, um, you failed the sobriety test. <laughs> yeah, there you have it, bud. And the second reason I pled guilty is I knew that if I started that hard chapter in my life, that when that ended, I could start the next chapter after that. Mm. During that time, I went to a Mothers Against Drunk Driving Victim Impact Panel. Somebody dropped me off in my car because I didn't have a license. Go in, and I can tell you, I want to share this with you. It was, no, it was uh, November 11th of 1998, and I share that with you because I can picture the seat I was in, the room, and the stage. And as this mom spoke about her daughter who was killed on the side of the road with a flat tire and a drunk driver hit her, the picture looked like a friend of mine, and I passed the picture on And I kept thinking to myself, what's the difference between the guy who killed her and me? And I couldn't come up with a single answer other than that's not what God had planned for me. I'm supposed to be here right now. And then I have this epiphany moment. I've already launched things at A&M. I'm one of the most charismatic like Tom Sawyers I've ever met. I can convince you to paint a fence before the day's over. (laughs) God gave me all these gifts and he gave me this experience. I'm going to go start a program so that good kids like me don't make stupid mistakes. And hopefully I can catch more in that net as well. And when I went out to my car, my friend said, oh, how was it? Thinking I was going to be miserable. And the words out of my mouth were, we're going to start the best designated driver program in the country and we're going to need a lot of help. And from that moment on, you know, the rest of my sophomore year and um, beginning of my junior year, so call it about 11 months, all I worked on was studying other programs throughout the US and figuring out, Good intentions, nobody was using them. All big colleges, small colleges, 
nobody used them and they were punitive to the people that were in charge. Mm-hmm. Like it was almost like community service to take care of somebody. I said, there's got to be a better way to create an organization that is free so people don't have to worry about where they're at in life. Non-judgmental. It's not about your religious beliefs, how old you are, if you're drinking or not drinking. It's just a safe ride home. Convenient. So it's not a bus route. You don't have to my wife is 5'4". I can't imagine her getting off a bus at two in the morning, having to walk 10 blocks. So come straight to your door where you're sleeping for that night. Comfortable, meaning there's a male and a female in every car. Every car is brand new. They're rented from Enterprise. I said non-judgmental. Student run. It's all students. You wouldn't think it was like the TABC out to bust you or catch you. And then the last is that it had to be rewarding. So it's rewarding to people who use it. Obviously, they're not drinking and driving. It's rewarding to the community because less drunk drivers means better community. Corporate sponsors, we did all sorts of great stuff for their goodwill. And then last but not least, I said, let's create a culture that's so great that people feel like they're part of a higher purpose, that their work matters and it's dignified, that they adhere to the mission, vision, and values. And outside of that, they can do anything they want to make this organization better. And that they say, ultimately, I get to go work and give up my nights and weekends, working carpool to take other people home because it's a place of bonding. It's a place of meaning. And it's a place of formation. And I was told no way in hell would it ever work by everybody. And I'm telling you, I had to sit in front of panels of lawyers, people in the community, family members, friends. I was told I probably had four people in my corner that kept shaking me and pushing me and loving me and letting me cry to them. Because if I tell you how many things we overcame, it's unbelievable. And I was told you'd have to pay these people. And I'm talking, you had to have 250 people on day one to run this organization three days a week. Not only did we not pay them, they were selected through competitive interview application. We took about half the people that applied, and then they paid student dues to be in a student organization that was also a 501c3, which was totally unique. Nobody at AM had ever launched their own student organization, nonprofit corporation. And we did all that for all these great reasons. I convinced Enterprise Rent-A-Car to rent every car to me, even though you had to be 25 to rent a car. We weren't a state agency. They gave me a third of them for free. And I had to come up with the other like 180 grand. And I rented 10,000 cars in my own name for the first year and a half. (laughs) And so we pulled it off. We launched the program in September of 99. Uh, Within a few months, it was noted as the most effective college safe ride program in the nation. Within a year, we had already started to franchise it under different monikers all over the US. So it's called Caring Aggies or Protecting of Our Lives, better known as Carpool. And to date, we're probably right at the 300,000 rides home mark this semester is going to happen. And in other programs throughout the US that maybe have a smaller campus, they've had more rides, only home, free, not to other bars, clubs, or parties. And so I think we've probably crossed a million rides home. And I'll tell you, it was expensive, grueling, exhausting. Oh, I need to get to the point of this. It hurt my health a lot. But 100% worth it to save one person's life. The lesson, the leadership lesson after that tangent, I I like can see business and see operations and I didn't know other people couldn't. So I would get really frustrated when I handed something off to somebody because they weren't doing it my way. That's pretty bad leadership. But I could also see all these moving pieces and I wasn't good at verbalizing it to people. So Mm -hmm. I literally touched every single part of the organization and made sure I knew everything and it was all cleared through me. The week it started was a Thursday. I was so stressed, so exhausted. By Sunday, I had lost 20 pounds. My throat was swelling shut. I could barely drink water. I was really kind of crashing. And I went to the ER twice that day and ended up hospitalizing me for a week. I was in the hospital the second weekend my program ever ran 
without the ability to speak because my mouth hurt so bad from this exhaustion condition, I became a liability to the organization I loved so much because there were great operations manuals and some risk, you know, uh, emergency manuals, but there was so much stuff that I was the only person who knew where it was, how it worked, why we did it. And I vowed when I got out of that hospital that when I was healthy, I would make sure that I transferred a hundred percent of the knowledge that I had and come up with a system so that knowledge transfer is happening all year long. So if somebody became the chairperson of this organization, you know, in February for the following year, by the time they start the following year, they're already doing a knowledge transfer to the next group. So it's perpetual. Mm-hmm. And that's why the founder graduated and you have a hundred percent turnover every four years. Yet the organization has the same culture, same impact, same brand, but the mechanics are different. They've come up with cool technologies or a different way to do it. And they're going to keep iterating because the world keeps changing. So, yeah. So I am again, so appreciative of the lessons. The first one is what you can do with a, with a mistake, That's right. you know, a failure and transforming that into something positive and taking your knocks. Like you said, you didn't try to get out of it. You were guilty. You did what was being asked of you to do because of that guilt. And then you made something out of it. So that's one of the things that I want anyone who's listening to think about. And there are probably people out there who have kids that are your age when this happened. And as a parent of 20-something-year-old daughters, our kids are going to goof up. That's right. And how we respond to that and how we coach them to respond to that is really, really important. And it's not through shame. That's right. But how do you um, begin again? And, you know, so you saw that as the death of one phase of your life Mm -hmm. and the beginning of another part. And the sooner that you could get to that next phase, then the sooner you could get to the phase beyond that. And so I think that resilience and that learning is key. And then also that you learned early that you you can't be in control of every aspect of the operation. What a great lesson to learn early in life. Because again, there are so many organizations and people in your at your level in organizations that still are having a hard time letting go and they're not living an undivided life because they're living a life that's 100% work and it's also very fear-based. That's right. And they haven't developed those relationships. They haven't developed the scale for their organization because they're so afraid of, of letting go and trusting other people. You know, I want to share one thing that dawns on me when I'm listening to you also that I don't often bring up as a lesson of this, but it's the lesson of storytelling. Mm. And the first part of it is for people to buy into this organization before it launched, we made sure that everybody knew that the guy who was starting it had spent the night in jail and that this wasn't you know, whatever local church getting a van together and trying to preach to you on the way home, which is great. I'm glad they do it. But this was somebody who was guilty of something that maybe you've been guilty of, or maybe you've ridden with somebody that you shouldn't have. And so my story was plastered all over the news, all over the newspaper, all over the radio. And I just told my parents, like, everybody in the world is going to know this because it's going to be part of the brand that allows people to know they can trust it. And the (laughs) the other part of the story, yeah, I ended up on the front page of the Fort Worth Star Telegram. And my parents are like, you didn't tell us it was going to reach here. Um, <laughs> no, they were so supportive. But the other part of the storytelling that I think is fascinating, think about what I just told you. I rented the cars. 
that was impossible. I got somebody to give me a four bedroom apartment to run it out of and let me do anything I wanted to, to move walls and run four to eight phone lines. I got Primeco to donate 16 phones and hundred percent of the minutes to us. And I had Texas A&M put the number and the name on the back of 50,000 student IDs. All of this before we had given a single ride. Like we literally didn't exist when I got all of these yeses. I got plenty of no's as well. But the way I got those was telling people a story of what the future looked like. And it wasn't, I read one time where somebody said, you know, you tell true lies. I would say, so Carpool is going to do this. This is how people are going to react. This is where your name's going to be. This is, but everything I said, I'd written it down, but it didn't actually exist at the time. And if people thought that that was a good idea, then I would go further with it. Okay, we, we should make that happen because I just said it and you, you said yes <laughs> right. to it. Don't make me a liar. Yeah, exactly. So um, what that became was like almost this vision casting of getting people to buy into something that they cared about because now it wasn't just things on a piece of paper or just a student group. It was something that they knew was going to be important. And I'll never forget the first Aggie football game When the game was over, the broadcaster who has, I don't know how many people listening says, and don't forget, blah, 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 carpool, gives out the phone number. And I was like, we did it. We did it. (laughs) And one more thing. I want to tell you about the football part of this. The woman who spoke and her daughter had been killed on the side of the road. Mm. I tracked her down the night before carpool launch. So it was a Wednesday night and I had my entire team and my mentor up at the top of the press box overlooking the football field. So you can see the whole city from there. And I had her come up there and I said, it's because your daughter's story that these people are sitting here. And she's been able to witness as a local in that area, 300,000 people getting safe transit because of the inspiring story. When she showed up to a victim impact panel, I think probably as reluctantly as the people that were sitting in the other seats, like, do I really have to go relive this? What is this for? So I just interviewed Nathan Havey as well. This idea of synchronicity or the universe conspiring, you know, the whole story of Ray Anderson reading a book that was placed on his desk at just the right time. I, you know, we could say that your DWI and spending the night in jail, how lucky was that? Amen. There are a lot of people whose lives have been saved because a series of fortunate or unfortunate events that you took hold of. And and I'm saying you, but I think it's that's available for all of us. Yes. What are we missing? What are we seeing as our downfall or mistakes or who are we blaming? Who are we blaming? Right, right. That police officer was out to get me. That's yeah, yeah. And and what do we miss when we don't take responsibility and we oh. don't take that reflection. Leanne, do you know, I have to share this part of this story. All these people's lives were saved. Carpool itself has created tons of marriages, right? People, they work together for a night, a guy and a girl in a car. They go through all this experience. It's lots of marriages. Uh, in 2008, Texas A&M named one of their fish camps after me because of my creation of Carpool. It was there that I met a shy counselor named Amanda Brown. After that was done, I told her we should probably date because we're supposed to get married. I'm very bold. It worked out really well. We named our first daughter Lorelai on our first date. And because of my arrest, leads to fish camp, leads to Amanda. That's where my beautiful family of Amanda plus six kids really all still stems from taking responsibility that night. And I know it's big. I started carpool, but that responsibility can come in any form. Yes. And and that's the invitation. That's right. Is, is where do we 
<sighs> where can we expand into our responsibility and see those opportunities that don't look like opportunities at the time? Oh, oh that's right. I feel like this is a good place to close. I love how you just drew that whole circle for us, named your wife yes. uh, here, and just all of the good things. And- She's my hero. She is my hero. She knows me better than I know me, so she helps me live an undivided life. I just have to go on record with that. She is the most beautiful person in the world. Well, anybody who's been pregnant for eight years is my hero. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, right. you know, I did it twice and that was enough. She's on, she's on round six and I oh. did not know she was a tiny little five, four woman. Mm-hmm. God bless her and you too. Yeah. Thank you. I'm, I feel so fortunate to know you. I'm so happy that we bumped into each other again at the Beyond Zero event. And thank you for your support of conscious capitalism, conscious cultures, and everything that you're doing to make the world a a better place and get your story out there. I I really appreciate it. What's a blessing. I joke because I'm sitting here playing with my Beyond Zero coaster from our big event while I'm talking to you. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, I would love if anybody ever wants to connect, I'm easy to find on LinkedIn because there's not many Jeff Shufflebinds. Yes, And I've also, for the last two decades, been speaking to corporate groups and schools and religious organizations all about this culture building, undivided life approach. And so if anybody ever wants to look up information on that, you can find it at my new URL, which is undivided.life. How cool is that? And of course, Energy by Five is the greatest energy advisory firm in history. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much. I was just about to ask you how how we stay in touch. I'm very excited to see what you continue doing with all this. You're young and you've got a lot left, so it only gets better from here. Thank you. What a blessing. Thank you. All right. I don't know about you, but I am left wanting to be a kinder and more integrated person and to be more aware of the lessons life is providing me. You can check the show notes for links to the resources and books we mentioned. And when you subscribe, like, or share episodes from Rise Leaders Radio, it really helps. And I really appreciate it. We're also on YouTube now on the Rise Leaders channel, which is actually a great place to leave any comments you have about this episode or any of the other episodes. I'd also love to hear from you if you're interested in executive coaching or leadership strategy and development work for your team. Go out and elevate your part of the world.